Well, as we roll into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, for those who are visiting with us, we're in a series in 1 Corinthians, start at the beginning, work our way all the way through to the end, and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to remind us of a few things. I want to reestablish a few things about the church in Corinth. Uh, if you think way back to my introductory sermon, a couple things we need to have in place in order to understand what's going on here in chapter 7 in the church in Corinth. First, we need to recognize that the church, the church isn't monolithic. They're all believing exactly the same thing at the same time. Not every person in the church was picking their favorite teachers and rejecting the apostles' teaching. Not everyone in the church was boasting in themselves based on worldly values rather than boasting in Christ. Not everyone in the church failed to grasp the gospel as the wisdom of God imparted by the Spirit of God. Not everyone in the church thought it was okay to affirm the membership of an incestuous man. Not everyone in the church thought it was okay to engage with sex with prostitutes. Not everyone in the church adopted pagan philosophy that salvation is only for the soul, and therefore whatever we do with our physical bodies is of no spiritual consequence. Not everybody believed all of these things, but some did. So you can see the many divisions in the church over many things. It wasn't just the people who said, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. There were were lots of divisions in the church. Things that Paul had been informed of, Matters of sin, which Paul has addressed already in chapters 1 through 6. But now in chapter 7, Paul is answering questions that the church leaders had themselves asked in a letter to him. You could say Paul ambushed them about their division and their arrogance and their sexual immorality in chapters 1 to 6 because he'd been informed of it. They didn't know that. But in chapter 7, and this is going to go all the way through chapter 11... Paul is answering questions that they've asked him to answer. Hey, Paul, some people are saying and teaching and doing things, and and we're not sure how to think about these things, so we're asking you to tell us what you think. So not every single member of the church is making all the same mistakes, but but there are a lot of people grouped together making a lot of mistakes. They're divided over many things. And here's the really ironic thing. They are divided because of their radical pursuit for greater spirituality. I mean, it's really something to be commended. They're really trying to be more spiritual. Many, not all, of the Corinthians want to be more spiritual. They want to be more holy, which is good. But they keep using worldly ideas and worldly methods to pursue greater holiness, which actually results in less holiness, worse, unholiness. And that's what we're looking at when we look at the church in Corinth. The Corinthians are obsessed, remember, with their spiritual gifts. This is another thing that Paul tips his hat towards in the very beginning. They're obsessed with spiritual gifts. And Paul admits that they are a church that has been blessed with many spiritual gifts. But they look at them wrongly. They look at them selfishly. This is really interesting, because this is going to matter to us as as we're making our way through the book. Paul doesn't even call them spiritual gifts. Did you know that? He calls them grace gifts. The Corinthians keep calling them pneumatica, spirit gifts. And they say, look at me. And my spirit gifts. But Paul refuses to call them spiritual gifts. He calls them charismata. Grace gifts. So whenever they say spiritual gifts, he says grace gifts. You have been given gifts of grace with which to serve others. That's how you're supposed to use spiritual gifts. That's how you're supposed to think about spiritual gifts. And he's going to attack that head on when we get to chapter 12. But I think this this reflects what Paul has already exposed about the Corinthian church in general. They are zealous in the pursuit of increasing spirituality, but they have missed the mark by accommodating culture 
which actually corrupts the church. Their mistaken pursuit of holiness has resulted in unholiness, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. And that's what's happening here in chapter, 20, chapter 7 with regards to sexual intimacy between a husband and wife in marriage. It seems crazy that they could get this wrong. But Christians today regularly go crazy for holiness fads generated outside of the church that when applied inside the church result in unholiness. We're not immune to this. So if you want to take the sermon outline, take a look at the sermon theme. This is what I want to camp on mostly this morning. Husbands and wives are to mutually enjoy sexual intimacy within marriage. In every situation of life, we are called to glorify God through selfless love in the gift of the one flesh relationship. Just a word about our expectations of this passage. Remember, context matters. Context especially matters in Corinth. First, Paul is not offering a complete systematic theology of marriage. All of your questions about marriage are not going to be answered in these verses. Paul's going to talk a little bit about divorce. All your questions about divorce are not going to be answered in these few verses. Paul's going to talk a little bit about divorced people remarrying. And all of your questions about remarriage after divorce aren't going to be answered here. So don't expect them to be. He's answering a specific question from a specific church. And you need to understand that to understand what he's saying. Second, Paul is addressing many situations that people find themselves in. People who are married and people who want to be married. People who are widowed and some who are divorced. And we have all of those people here this morning in our congregation. But Paul is not addressing directly your personal situation because he does not know directly your personal situation. So don't mistake Paul's answer as a specific, to a specific question from the church in Corinth as a specific answer to you in your circumstances. Let's wait and see what Paul has to say about these things and then apply that lesson to us, okay? We'll apply what Paul says after we understand what Paul says. So let me read chapter 7 uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 1 to 17. I'm going to tack verse 17 on because it helps to explain Paul's governing thought for the whole chapter, what we're going to study today and what we're going to study next week. This is the Word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. 
In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is the word of God. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Says who? Who says that a husband should not have sexual relations with his wife? Because that's, what it's, that's how it's being used. That's what's being applied here. You know, for centuries, theologians thought that Paul was the one saying this. After all, he wrote it. Which has made this a very difficult passage to understand. And one that we approach with great foreboding. These verses. Because the notion paints Paul as a mean, misogynistic old bachelor who wanted to keep women servile, who claimed to be only spiritual people or unspiritual people, weak people, needed to get married, and that his celibacy made him more special than everybody else. And if Paul said this, we have real problems. Because he's contradicting the Word of God in Genesis. God gave the one flesh relationship of marriage to Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the garden, he commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply. This applies to all creation. If Paul said this, then it is a very negative passage and one we want to hide from. But that is actually the exact opposite of what is true here. Paul is strongly upholding marriage. Paul is emphatic that sexual intimacy in marriage is right and good. Paul is encouraging us to receive the grace of God in marriage and to embrace the holiness that exists in sexual intimacy within marriage. What were those theologians missing? Quotation marks. They were missing the quotation marks. If you're reading along in the ESV, you see the quotation marks around. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman, and quotation marks. It was another one of those slogans that some in the Corinthian church were using. So it's not Paul, but the Corinthians who were saying that a husband should not have sex with his wife. What? There is a division within the church saying this, practicing this, and judging the spirituality of others by this. Where in the world did they get this idea? Exactly. It was another one of those ideas they grabbed out of the world. I think this goes back to the Corinthians' wrong view of the physical body that we looked at last week in chapter 6. Pagan religions and Greco-Roman philosophy hold a negative view of our physical bodies. God does not. God created us as embodied spirits, and we will be in eternity. This negative view of the body, it breaks in two ways, right? We can see it here now that we've read chapter 7. Since the body is completely separate from our soul's salvation, that's what they were saying in chapter 6, we can be sexually immoral with prostitutes and not lessen our holiness. The two don't touch. Paul says, never! In chapter 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, here in chapter 7, since the body is completely separate from our soul's salvation, we should abstain from the sexual intimacy that God allows and in that way increase our holiness. It's the same wrong view of the body applied two different ways. The same unholy idea results in two unholy results. Ignore God's grace by sinning with your body or ignore the grace of God's holy provision for your body. It's for you. The body is for Christ and Christ is for the body. So the Corinthians are asking if this is true. Does sexual intimacy in marriage make the husband and wife less holy? Should we stop having relations? Which again, Paul 
Paul understands are only permissible within marriage in order to become more holy, to pursue a greater spirituality, to live a life that's more pleasing to God? Is that what we should do? So Paul is going to explain how to glorify God with your body through sexual intimacy in marriage. This is something we need to hear in our hypersexualized culture. This is something our children need to hear in our culture that is demanding that their identity is lodged in their sexuality. We need to hear God's plan and receive God's grace and be confident that we are serving and glorifying God when we love and serve our spouse in marriage. God's gift of sex is not dirty. Paul is not a mean apostle. This is a helpful and an encouraging passage of Scripture for us to look at. And we need to see it that way. First, let's take, let's take a look now at the, at the right view of intimacy, uh, beginning in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time for prayer. See, Paul is clearly saying that husbands and wives should enjoy regular, mutual, sexual intimacy. Why? His reason is to avoid the temptation to sexual immorality. Really? That's the purpose of marriage? Well, it's one of them. There are others, right? There are other good reasons for getting married, for example, for procreation, to be fruitful and multiply, yes. For companionship, it's not good for the man to be alone, yes. To bear the image of God upon the earth and to exercise dominion, yes. Why does Paul then emphasize avoiding temptation to sexual immorality? Why is that his message? Because he's answering a question from a congregation that has real issues with sexual immorality. That's who he's talking to. That's his target audience. Some are using the same argument to not have sex with their wives and to have sex with prostitutes. That's who he's talking to. Their problem in chapter 6 is connected then to their problem in chapter 7. So Paul's upholding sexual intimacy in marriage to combat sexual immorality in the church. He's trying to save marriages. This context is specific to the Corinthians. Because of real cases of sexual immorality in the church. Paul says these words. Each married man should have sexual intimacy. So have your wife, have your husband. There's a sexuality implied in that. Each married woman should have sexual intimacy with his own wife. Each married woman should have sexual intimacy with her own husband. See, he's, he's exposing their lie. He's exposing the hole in their pursuit of holiness. Their plans aren't working. They are not growing in godly spirituality. They are shrinking. And Paul says, you are going to all these radical extremes to be holy. You've misunderstood that you are saved, body and soul, and you're putting yourselves at risk for more sexual immorality. Because when he breaks his pledge to not have sex with his wife, a man's not going to go back and admit that by having sex with his wife. He's going to unite himself with a prostitute, which is what's happening in Corinth. And it's clearly not godly spirituality. It's an epic fail. So Paul answer, Paul's answer to the Corinthians' question is tied to what he has already said in chapter 6. We see that. And then Paul says something that's astounding. Sexual intimacy in marriage is for the mutual pleasure of the husband and wife. Look at Paul's one flesh mutual context in marriage. He keeps saying, likewise, likewise, both of them together. Each man should have his own wife, and each wife 
should have her own husband. Each husband should give intimacy to his wife, and each wife should give intimacy to her husband. Do you hear the mutuality that Paul is honing in on? Each husband has authority over his wife's body, and each wife has authority over her husband's body? Okay, that's a blockbuster in Corinth. That's a blockbuster statement that nobody in Corinth has ever, ever heard before. And then verse 5, do not deprive one another. You're depriving your spouse of something. Let not one rob the other of their right to sexual intimacy in marriage. Paul is not making sex slaves out of wives. It's quite the opposite. Greco-Roman culture did that. In Corinth, a wife was duty-bound to have sex with her husband until she produced at least two children. And a husband was duty-bound only to himself. Those were the rules. And our culture isn't much different. America says, you don't have to be married to have sex or to have children. A man can walk away from children with his feet, and a woman can walk away from children with a morning-after pill. With regards to marriage and family, American culture, I think, is more pagan than Corinthian culture. Far more extreme. I think we need to grasp Paul's idea of mutuality in marriage. Husband and wife, husband and wife, husband and wife, never is one mentioned in this passage without the other. This idea of mutuality in marriage expresses what we know to be the one flesh relationship of marriage. It's the one flesh relationship that binds Paul's comments on pleasure and authority together. Because they are. We get nervous when Paul says that a husband has authority over his wife's body. I mean, we get really nervous with that. And we understand why. And we completely miss the radical, world-changing announcement that a wife has authority over her husband's body. What is Paul saying to these Corinthians? I think Paul is describing the one flesh relationship as it relates to sexual intimacy, the physical part of the one flesh relationship. The one flesh relationship is everything, but there's this physical part. And he says... That as one flesh, you do not have the authority to deny intimacy to your spouse because you're one flesh. And your spouse does not have the authority to deny you sexual intimacy because you are one flesh. If you could deny your spouse or your spouse could deny you, you would still be two fleshes but you're one flesh. Does that mean that I have no say in the matter? Of course not. In the one flesh marriage, authority over the other's body is bound to responsibility for the other's body. There's no understanding of authority in Christianity without responsibility first. Because God has given you a responsibility, you then have the authority to carry out that responsibility. In the one flesh marriage, authority over the body is bound to responsibility over the body. Christians are to love one another. Right? We're to love one another as we love ourselves. How much more are we to love one another mutually in marriage? Sexual intimacy is a mutual coming together of husband and wife. Paul is telling the Corinthians that they do not have the authority to deny their one flesh what is already their one flesh. Neither the husband nor the wife has the authority to say to the other, I have the authority to deny you, to defraud you of what is yours because I'm going to go pursue my own holiness my own way. What is so ironic is that they're practicing asceticism. This, this, this is the idea that you're going to deny yourself something that you have a right to in order to become more spiritual. But Paul says, in your, in your hurry to self-denial, 
you're actually denying someone else. That's a no-go. Paul allows only one concession, and he puts guardrails all around it. If you must, you can fast from sexual intimacy only for the purpose of prayer. If you're interested in increasing your spirituality, you can pray with a sexual fast for a little while. It's only for prayer, and that's the extent, that's the extent of any positive break from sexual intimacy to pursue holiness. It has to be a mutual decision by the husband and the wife. It has to be a very short break, and you have to come together again. Because even in this pursuit of holiness, you render yourselves vulnerable, Paul says. He's talking to the Corinthians. You may lack, as your track record shows, the self-control to resist Satan's temptation to sexual immorality, even if you take a short break for prayer. So Paul's answer to the Corinthians is not only based on what he has already said in chapter 6, it's based on what he's going to say in chapter 13. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But it rejoices in the truth. So does the one flesh relationship. The Corinthians have missed the truth of God's grace. In, in their pursuit of personal holiness, they've missed God's grace. Insisted on their own spiritual way. Boasting in their own wrongdoing with respect to sexual intimacy and the one flesh relationship of marriage. And they miss something else. And it's something that we miss too. We pick up in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, referring to his concession to allow them to break for prayer. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You know, I think Paul's administering a little, a little pastoral gentleness here to the Corinthians. His concession is that they may fast from sexual ministry in order to pray. It's, it's like throwing throwing a little bit of an encouragement to those who want to break entirely in order to grow spiritually. But then he says, but let's be clear. This is not a command. And you do not have the authority to deny sexual intimacy to your spouse. But Paul understands the concept of undivided service to Christ. He says, I wish that all might be able to do as I do. If, if, you didn't, if you weren't encumbered by marriage, and that's not, a, that's not a, uh, a disdaining of marriage, it's just a recognition of the reality of marriage. Right? You, can, you, could, you could do more. But what's more important is this, that marriage is a gift from God. Both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, so neither one is wrong, and both are good. Did you catch that? Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a charismata. We don't normally talk about marriage that way. We don't talk about marriage being a spiritual gift, but Paul does. The Corinthians were all about pneumatica, spiritual gifts, and Paul says that marriage with sexual intimacy in it, is one. But he calls it charismata, a grace gift. Let's, let's do this. Let's wrap Paul's answer to the Corinthians, which we've read here, in God's gift of a one flesh relationship in Genesis chapter 1, and wrap it with Paul's words to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 33. 
Let's kind of put, you wait with me, we're going to put all those things together. We already talked about two, we're adding the third, which is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let each wife see that she respects her husband. When we wrap all of those together like a three-strand cord, marriage is a grace gift. Husbands, love your wives. Serve her, not yourself, in sexual intimacy. Wives, love your husbands. Serve him in sexual intimacy rather than withhold yourself. There's no room for power grabs or manipulation here. This is how Christians behave to one another. This is how Christian husband and wife serve one another. Because you are one flesh and love does not boast in its own way. Having established all of that, Paul goes on to address various groups in the church who've been affected by this false teaching and are wondering what to do. You're trying, trying to make sense of the rest of this chapter. So some are saying, what, what should I do if I'm widowed? I mean, I'm hearing this, you know, you, you can't have sex with a woman thing. There's not supposed to be any sexual intimacy. What am I supposed to do if I'm widowed? What should I do if I've divorced because of this? What should I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? All of these people have questions, and Paul has concern for them. All of these people in all of these situations have been affected by this false teaching, and they don't know what to do. So Paul just works his way down the list of each situation. And Paul has this one basic principle that he follows for all of them. It's the reason why I wanted to read verse 17. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. This is my rule in all the churches. You know, he's going to go on to say, we'll look at this in detail next week, but he's going to go on to say in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And in verse 24, So brothers, whatever condition you were called, there let him remain with God. Paul's, Paul's rubric is stay put. Stay put. We'll spend more time on that next week, but we need to see how Paul uses this rule in his directions here in these first 16 verses. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, several commentators suggest that the word here translated unmarried is better understood as widowers. And there are a few reasons for that. First, this word is, is pretty rarely used, and it's often translated as widower. And, and you, can see, you can see the category mix. You can see how a close understanding this is, that a widower can fit into a, a category of unmarried, and unmarried could fit into a category of widower. But Paul, Paul later addresses the category of unmarried people in verse 25. And if you stick with the word unmarried, you're not going to get any of Paul's meaning wrong. You're just going to apply it to a larger group. But, but think about this. Twelve times in this passage, Paul writes in pairs, man and woman, husband and wife. So the context causes me to side with these commentators that, that he intended widowers and widows here. And that itself is a pretty big category in Corinth. Women in Corinth probably got married as young as 13 maybe 12. And some say the average life expectancy would have been around 30. So the church might have quite a few young widows and widowers. So that those who have lost their spouse, Paul says it's good to remain unmarried. Why? Well, he talks about it in verse 32. If we want to dip into next week's text just for a little bit, the unmarried man is is anxious, by that he means concerned, about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the merry man is anxious or concerned about worldly things, how to please his wife, his children for that matter. We can insert that. And his interests or his responsibilities are divided. This is the reason why Paul said, I wish all were as I am. So that their only concern would be to serve the Lord. But remember that both being married and being unmarried are gifts from God. 
So both are good. But a married man has additional responsibilities. And they are from God. So Paul says it's good in that way for them to remain single. It's not required, not commanded, not necessary for them to remain single. But Paul says to consider it for this reason of undivided service to the Lord. If you can, stay where you are. Then, remembering the Corinthians' track record of sexual immorality, Paul tells them that if they are burning with sexual passion, they should get married. When Paul says that his being unmarried is a gift, he also means that his contentment in being celibate is part of that gift. That will come up again later in chapter 12 when Paul takes on uh, spiritual gifts head on. See, Paul, this is important because, look, Paul doesn't uh, think he's more spiritual because he has managed his own ability to muster up enough self-control to forego sexual intimacy. No, he says that's a a grace gift from God. That's why he can do that. He wants the Corinthians to know that he hasn't fallen into the same trap, you see. He doesn't think he's more spiritual because he forgoes sexual intimacy. And he doesn't want us to think that marriage is only for weak Christians who who can't control their desires. But if you have not received that gift, then you should seek a husband or wife. If a widower or widow is grieving the loss of a companion and the love that they have known, they may also grieve the loss of sexual intimacy that they have known. That is not in any way a sin to grieve the loss of a gift from God. But you should get married. Both are good gifts from a gracious God to serve God in widow status or to serve God in marital status. Paul's pro-marriage. He's not making impossible demands. He's saying, stay put if you can. If not, you're free to marry. He's being gentle, compassionate. He's very pastoral here. Pick up in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Some married couples in the church may be asking, if it's more spiritual for us to not have sex, then why not just separate completely? That would make them super spiritual. Deprive your spouse of intimacy, divorce them, and tell them it's for their own spiritual betterment. That is a disaster, and it goes against Jesus' teaching. You know, there are two phrases. Just just look at this sentence. There are two phrases in parentheses. So let's just read the sentence without the two parenthetical phrases. Here's what it sounds like. To the married I give this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. That's Paul's answer. That's Paul's answer to them. That's Paul's answer to a Christian married to a Christian. Married couples are not to divorce. And that's Jesus' teaching on divorce. That's why Paul writes in parenthesis, not I but the Lord. Because Jesus himself taught on this topic in Matthew chapter 19. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus taught on this topic. In chapter 19, Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, I didn't get that one flesh idea to link here on my own. Paul does it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That's Jesus' charge to married couples in Corinth. So, to divorce would be more spiritual to go directly against Jesus' teaching? No. No, that's crazy talk. But what if someone, some married couples in the church have already divorced because of this misguided effort to be more spiritual. In the other set of parentheses, Paul applies the rest of Jesus' teaching from Matthew chapter 19. 
Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Paul's not addressing people who are divorcing a spouse who has committed sexual immorality. That's not in here. He's addressing people who are divorcing to become more spiritual. And he says that Jesus does not allow for your divorce. You have no grounds for such a divorce. And Jesus allows you two choices if you've done this. You can remain divorced forever, or you can remarry your spouse. You can come back together. Those are your choices. You can stay where you are, or you can go back to where you were. But do not compound the problem by marrying another and committing more sexual immorality. You may not marry another. You know, if you are trying to improve your holiness through divorce, you are just messed up. But there is one more set of people in Corinth who are concerned about their personal holiness in marriage. They want to know how to be holy when married to an unbeliever. Pick up in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and, she consents to, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? To the rest means to the rest of you married people. Okay, to the rest of you married couples. He just addressed believers married to one another. Now he's addressing believers who are married to an unbeliever. We know and Paul knows that Christians are to marry Christians. So these are Christians who came to saving faith after they were already married. So they're asking, because of what's been said, can I be holy if my spouse is an unbeliever? What should I do? Am I made unclean? And Paul says, stay as you are. When Paul writes in parenthesis, I, not the Lord, he's just clarifying that Jesus did not speak to this particular situation as Jesus had before, but that Paul's speaking to it. Does that mean that since Paul said it, we don't have to listen? No. Paul's writing a whole letter that we have to listen to. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Right? Chapter 1, verse 1. This is Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, delivered through the Apostle. It is authoritative for our lives. And Paul's not being a negative Nelly here. He's concerned and compassionate towards these believers. Remember, he called them his children in chapter 4. These believers who love their husband, love their wife, love their children, and they've been ill-served by those who are not only dividing the church, but they're dividing households in the name of holiness. So these believing spouses ask a good question. They ask a relevant question about holiness. Holiness does not mean saved. It means clean or unclean in the eyes of God. And this deserves a minute. Paul had just told him in chapter 6 that believers are not to unite with prostitutes who are considered unclean. So this is rattling around in their mind. If I'm not to unite with the unclean, with an unbeliever, does sexual intimacy with my unbelieving spouse make me unclean? That's the specific question Paul's answering. These husbands and wives are not trying to get out of marriage. They're they're just trying to live holy lives before God. And Paul's answer is, stay where you are. 
The believing spouse is not to initiate divorce. And he gives two reasons why. The first has to do with the direction in which clean and unclean travel. Old Testament law prohibited God's people from touching unclean things because the decay and the unrighteousness moved from the unclean thing up to you. The clean thing. If Paul was ministering that old covenant law to us, we would expect Paul to say, you should separate from your unbelieving spouse. We can just take a quick look back at Ezra chapter 9 and 10. There's a great revival in Jerusalem where the people move towards greater holiness and they do it by separating, divorcing their foreign wives and their children. Send them away. But things are gloriously different under the new covenant. We've all been shown to be unclean in Adam, in Adam we've all sinned. And what the law was not able to do, Christ has done. We have been made clean in the eyes of God, and we will remain clean by His grace. In all three synoptic gospels, remember this, we see Jesus overcoming the law by touching an unclean leper. Remember that? All three synoptic gospels. And He heals them. Instead of the leprosy moving up and contaminating Jesus, righteousness moved down and cleaned the leper. That's the direction change. By the grace of God, cleanliness moves in the direction towards the unclean. So dear believing husband or believing wife, it is by grace that your one flesh union is clean in the eyes of God because you have been made clean in Christ and cannot be rendered unclean. You will not save the man, but in this way, by grace, in your marriage, you make your husband clean and you make your children clean. Which leads to the second reason. By God's grace, we have a sanctifying effect on people around us. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Now, if, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, walks away, slams the door, then you are no longer enslaved to that unbeliever in marriage and you are free to marry another. Not everyone agrees with my understanding of that. I admit that. I have good friends who pastor good churches, and they do not agree with that. But they respect that, and I respect their thought. But I believe that there are two biblical allowances for divorce in case of sexual immorality, as spoken by Jesus, and in case of abandonment, as spoken by Paul. And that all biblical divorce allows for biblical remarriage. So, so Paul confronts and he encourages them. He says, be at peace, whatever God's called you to. There is a sovereign God, and he's your sovereign God. And he knows these things. After all, your faithful witness to Christ, your unwavering commitment to your family, your selfless love and service to your spouse are the very things God uses to bring sinners to repentance and save them. We don't know if and when God may do that. So it's good to remain where you are. You know, if you realize that you're here this morning and that you're an unbeliever, you may be thinking, I don't really like all this talk about being unclean. I don't think I like to be called unclean. It's offensive. You're right. Your unwillingness to acknowledge the one true God and to thank Him for giving you life and providing for you is offensive to Him. That's the uncleanness 
that the Bible is pointing to you this morning. Like the Corinthians, you have all sorts of ideas and plans for making yourself acceptable to whatever higher power it is that might be out there. And like the Corinthians, you are overlooking the only thing that works, which is the grace of God that He freely gives if you will set aside your foolish performance of personal spirituality and trust in the sin-atoning death and the life-giving resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Your sin is the cause of your separation from God. And God has effects. He's willing to pour out His forgiveness and His mercy on you if you will have it. If you will trust your holiness to Christ, you will be set free from enslavement to this world of sin and at peace with God and with yourself. Forever. And to you believers, married, widowed, divorced, don't you miss the grace of God to you in whatever situation in life you find yourself. Don't make any knee-jerk reactions based on the latest fad for holiness because they come and go. We bring them into the church and then we have to kick them back out. Stay as you are. United with Christ, bound by grace in ever-increasing holiness and peace. Stay right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace. Those words roll off our tongues so quickly and easily that sometimes we fail to recognize their profundity. You are a gracious and merciful God to sinners like us. It was the cost of your son. We're bought with a price, and that price was your very own son's blood. And yet he went to the cross willingly for us so that our spirituality is not dependent on our misguided and lackluster efforts, but on faith in him. And so we pray that you would grow us in real holiness in this life, together with one another, all for your glory. That is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.